right, church family, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, if you don't know where that is, go to page 970 in your pew Bible, and you'll find it sitting right there at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Now, this is our last Sunday moving through this letter, and what a joy it's been to move through this letter. Has it not been? It's been so rich. Uh, the next two Sundays, we will look at individual psalms, psalms of David. So starting next Sunday for the, that Sunday and the one after, we're going to look at psalms. And then we're going to start a sermon series that will move us through a character study on the life of David. That'll be great, won't it? Primarily through 2 Samuel, but I don't want to start that sermon series yet. As much as I'm eager to, let's finish off 2 Corinthians. Okay, so 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at all of chapter 13. We're rounding out this letter. And if you will recall, there have been at least two dominant themes that have moved this letter forward, that have driven, that have given shape to Paul's argument. If someone were to ask you on a pop quiz, what would you say are the two main themes of 2 Corinthians? Could you tell them? Well, let me give you a cheat sheet. The first one is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember, as we've moved through this letter, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master has been a recurring theme. In fact, so much so that it's made us very uncomfortable at times during this letter, hasn't it? Where the Lordship of Jesus has been presented in such a way that it reminds us that we are not our own but have been bought with a price. That we have a Master. And He holds all the prerogatives and gets to tell us what to do what to love, how to spend our money, what to do with our bodies. I mean, it is a profound and deep truth that Paul tells the Corinthians, Jesus Christ is Lord. The second macro theme in this letter has, of course, been that true strength is never found in bravado or machismo. True strength is not about boasting or bragging. True strength for the Christian person is found in their weakness. Christians do not push away moments of weakness, but instead embrace them. Because it's in those moments that we are reminded and we demonstrate to others that the greatest source of our strength is not our own ability, it's not our own fortitude, but it's in the grace of God. So two, two macro themes. Jesus Christ is Lord and strength is found in weakness. Let me just give you a quick highlight reel of some of the things we've seen in 2 Corinthians as we move through. Chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Chapter 4, verse 7 forward, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Chapter 4, verse 16. So we don't lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's gold. Chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God. Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's just some of the highlights from this letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And they bring us to this ultimate chapter 13. Chapter 13 is structured around this framework. Okay, the the first thing that Paul is going to tell them. So he's pieced together this masterpiece of a letter to deal with the pastoral issues in their church, to remind them of the lordship of Christ, to call them to embrace weakness as an opportunity for Christ's strength to show forth. That's what he's been telling them. And then he finishes in chapter 13 with this. If you want to live a Christian life, first... You need to be in a position where other people, other Christians, can examine your life. Second thing he's going to say in chapter 13, you need to examine yourself. And then he gives his final farewell. So let's jump into verses 1 to 4 and look at this invitation to have other people examine you. I trust you have your Bible open by now. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. See, Paul is preparing to come back to them for a third time. 
And he knows that there is sin that has to be repented of in this church. In particular, it's the sin of listening to the super apostles who were trying to undermine Paul and his ministry. And he says, any of the charges that are going to be brought forward, they need to be substantiated by at least two or three people. Well, think about what that means for you as a Christian in the life of the church. It means for us that the Christian life is best lived in community. In a community where there are real relationships. If you are going to grow in your Christian life, you need other people in your life, brothers and sisters in Christ who know you, who love you, and who care enough for you to bring rebuke when necessary. Have you ever experienced that? I've experienced it at key moments in my life where Christian friends have come to me with a word of rebuke, where they've pointed out things in my life that, you know, maybe I was subconsciously aware of, but just avoiding, and I needed someone who loved me enough to wound me. That's what Scripture says. Better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. You see, if your Christian life is to grow and flourish, you must have community, authentic community, where other people can bring evidence two or three at a time that will invite you to consider your life and change. That's what Paul's saying. We desperately need input from others. Paul cautions and he says, this input from others, it should come from more than one person if it's going to be trustworthy. That sort of makes sense, doesn't it? If one person comes to you and points out something in your life that needs to be changed, you know, perhaps that person is just a jerk. Or perhaps they have their own axe to grind or their own. But, but if you're a Christian person and you keep hearing repeated things, if you hear repeatedly the same thing from two, three, four different sources about you that you don't want to hear, you've got to consider that maybe you're the problem. on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You've heard the old adage, you don't accept criticism from anyone from whom you would not accept advice. But Paul's saying, if you have two or three brothers or sisters in Christ that come to you with the same thing, heed it. It's a difficult passage for us to read in today's world. We fear and disparage the very word judgment, don't we? In fact, in today's secular world, the whole idea of judging has become like a mortal sin. Don't judge me. Don't tell me what to do. So is there a place for judgment within the church? Well, both yes and no. You see, what Scripture prohibits is not judgment, but judgmentalism. The moment we as Christians begin to hold each other to account around sin in our life or begin to tell a secular sinful world about sin in its life, we are met with the teaching of Jesus where Jesus said, what did he say? Judge not, lest you be judged. For in the same measure you judge others, so will it be measured to you. You guys know that teaching of Jesus, and it's true. 
But that's used within our relationships, often not in a helpful way, but instead to try to silence and quiet any form of judgment. It's true, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. That's Matthew chapter 7. But in a few verses, in the very next breath, Jesus also said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And so if you're going to understand what Jesus is talking about, you can't isolate the one teaching apart from the other. Because for a Christian person to heed Jesus' warning and not cast their pearls before swine, well, that requires judgment, doesn't it? That requires a level of discretion and measurement. And so we see clearly that what Jesus is forbidding is not judging, but judgmentalism. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, listen, if you're going to grow in your Christian life, you have to embrace the fact that judgment in a certain capacity is necessary. Christians need to be wise with one another and judge which things, which actions, which objects of affection are worthy of your life and your attention and worthy of the kingdom, and which are not. That's, that's not only okay judgment, it's necessary judgment. That's what Paul's driving at here at the end of this letter. He's written this enormous letter and he says, look, Corinthians, if you're going to get your stuff together, you got to be able to hold each other accountable. There's a place in the Christian church for that kind of judgment and measurement where we hold one another accountable. See, the kind of judgmentalism that we all find repugnant is... It's unjust in its foundations. You know, if, if someone comes along and judges you on parameters or on things that are unfair and unjust, you rightly reject that judgment and you recoil. Or maybe it's unloving. If someone comes to you and the judgment they, they bring to bear on you as a Christian brother or sister um, it's not from a place of love. It's not intended to bring about restoration in your life and repentance. It's only intended to beat the daylights out of you. Well, friend, reject that. That kind of judgmentalism happens when Christians within the church bring judgment and discretion to bear on others, forgetting that they too were sinners saved by grace. Okay, that's, that's ugly and repugnant. That doesn't help anyone grow in Christ. But Paul is telling the Corinthians the same thing that Jesus told his disciples. You have to examine one another. If you're going to grow in Christ, you have to have the kind of relationships where people know one another and love one another and are able to rebuke one another in love to bring about repentance and change. You might find yourself in a situation where a Christian brother or sister judges you and tells you, hey, listen, you got to get that sorted out. And your answer immediately is this defensive knee-jerk reaction, right? 
especially if the person's really, really close to you. You know, there's like, a, there's like an inverse relationship between how close you are to a person and how much you can say to them, right? However, the closer you are to a person, the less you can actually say to them without seeing defensiveness pop up. If you don't believe me, go home and tell your husband you don't like the way he chooses food. I mean, it's a silly example, but anyway, if someone comes to you and they, and they tell you something that is a Christian godly rebuke and your first reaction is defensiveness, a knee-jerk reaction, and you say, don't judge me, well, maybe you're rejecting it because you look at them and you say, you can't judge me, you're not perfect either. Or maybe you look at them and you say, don't bring that judgment to bear on me because it's not entirely true. But what Paul wants to see in the Corinthian church and what Paul wants to see in your life and mine is a different way to receive that kind of evidence. Instead of dismissing it, right? You're not perfect. It's not entirely true. Take a deep breath and look for the grain of truth in the pile of sand. Have the kind of Christian relationships where you trust the other person's intent and you welcome loving criticism because you know that it's for your good. You say, gosh, R.D., I don't, I don't even know how that would be possible. Listen, one of the reasons it seems impossible is because too many of us live out of the insecurity of being rooted in ourselves. It's only a life that has been truly shaped and transformed by the gospel that could ever be confident enough to, to, to seek out such appraisals from loving brothers and sisters. All right, verses 1 to 4, Paul's warning that the Corinthians had better get themselves sorted out before he arrives and that they need each other if they're going to. He's reminding the Corinthian Christians and you and me that we live our Christian life only in community with other Christians, ones who will bring judgment to bear on us in a loving way. Verses 2 to 4. Paul says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while being absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. What's Paul saying? He's saying, man, I'm, I'm coming for the third time, and you guys are going to do a lot better to sort this out amongst yourselves, because the stakes are incredibly high. Paul, in verse 2 to 3, reminds us that when it comes to sin in the church, it's worth the uncomfortable conversations that could be misconstrued as judgment. Because God is hard as flint on sin in the church. Paul says, Examine one another. Subject yourself to the examination of other Christians. 
so that Christian growth will happen. In verses 4 to 5, Paul is shaping this examination of one another back in terms of his overarching argument of strength and weakness. Listen, uh, verse 3 says, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you are going to truly grow in Christ, you need to examine others and subject yourself to the examination of other Christians. You have to, because you're never going to be objective enough to see it on your own entirely. And here's what he's saying in these verses. He's saying, the only way that that kind of mutual examination can ever work is through weakness and not strength. But Paul's saying, as he has throughout this entire letter, that it's weakness that is actual strength, okay? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, the only way this is going to work is if you have the strength to tell a brother or sister the thing that they do not want to hear. That takes strength. Paul says the only way this is going to work is if you have the strength to hear from a brother or sister the very things that you don't want to hear. Well, what does that look like practically? Well, Paul would say it only works when both sides of that relationship look like Jesus. If it only works if you approach the rebuke in apparent weakness and humility that is actually strength. It only works if you receive the rebuke in apparent weakness that is actually strength. You see, Paul's saying, look, Corinthian Christians and Christians at St. George's, if you want to grow in Christ, you need to subject yourselves to the judgment of one another. Approach others in weakness and humility when you're pointing out the sin in their life with two or three others. Receive the rebuke in weakness. Because in both strengths, that's, in both cases, that's actually an exhibit of strength. Okay, verses 1 to 4 is our first point. Like Paul, we have to be prepared to exhort, encourage, and discipline those who have fallen into sin, as well as to restore the penitent. That's the first thing Paul leaves the Corinthians with. Examine one another. The second thing, look at verses 5 to 10. What does it say in verse 5? Examine yourself. So in the first case, Paul is saying, you need a church family around you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that can bring examination to bear and help you to grow in the Lord. And you also need to undertake the examination of yourself. Verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, selves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to 
meet the test. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Maybe it's a question that plagues you in an unhealthy way. Am I a Christian? Examine yourself, Paul says. You ever heard of the phenomenon of imposter syndrome? It's when you find yourself in a situation in life where, you know, you bear the title, you bear the responsibility of that position, you're carrying out the role, but deep inside you feel like you don't really belong there. You have this overwhelming, impending sense of doom because you think, man, if people ever find out that I'm really just Ray David, you know, that's imposter syndrome. This is worldly and secular language for something that sometimes I think Christians feel. Maybe in your Christian life you feel like an imposter sometimes. But for the elect, for the people who belong to God in Jesus Christ, the question, am I a Christian, is never about imposter syndrome. It's about something deeper. It's about something that's actually productive and useful and fruitful. When you ask yourself the question, am I a Christian? It's not imposter syndrome. It's either heeding the prompting of the Holy Spirit to repent of sin and return to the Lord. Okay? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in some cases. Or, it's the voice and accusation of Satan trying to rob you of the confidence that is yours in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is painting here is a picture of the Christian life that returns to self-examination. Now look, Christian men and women tend to fall prey to the same problems as the world. We can err as it relates to self-examination in one of two ways. Some people go through their entire life without a measure of self-reflection or examination. They just rip through life and lay waste to everyone in their path, right? With no clue, no self-examination. But then at the opposite end of the spectrum, there are some Christians who live under the crushing load of constant scrutiny paralyzing them from ever living a joyful Christian life. Paul is instructing neither of those extremes here. What he's saying is there's a healthy place for Christian self-reflection. Now, this is the beauty of the Christian life. When a non-Christian person endeavors to be self-reflective and think about themselves, they have no objective standard against which to measure themselves. Right? The standard changes every day with passing fads. Or, when they endeavor to be self-reflective, they are relying entirely on their own ability to be objective. Well, good luck with that. But when the Christian person seeks to be self-reflective and examine themselves, God grants you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that will confirm and strengthen you in all goodness. The Holy Spirit that will convict you of your sin. It's also better than secular 
self-reflection because it's not subjective. But we examine our lives according to the truth revealed to us in Scripture, and that's timeless. The point of verse 5. Paul's saying, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith and if the faith is in you. Test yourselves. All right, so you look at that this morning and you think, okay, R.D., so surround myself with trusted, loving friends who are going to be honest with me about my life. That's important for Christian growth, okay? Second thing, take seriously the task of self-examination, but how do I do that? Well, let me give you some practical tips. The first thing to say is to begin with areas that you know exist where you are being willfully disobedient to the Lord. If you're a Christian man or woman and you just quickly take stock of your life, you know that there are areas where you are willfully disobedient to the Lordship of Jesus. You know that it's sin and yet you give yourself permission and license to do it. Start there. Repent. Return to the Lord for his grace. And pray that he would give you new affections. To hate that thing, whatever it is, and to love him. Start there. Then the next step is to go a little bit more deep, you know, in your self-examination. To look more closely at your life as honestly as you can muster. Are there areas in your life that would demonstrate that you are trusting in functional saviors? That your hope and your trust is not ultimately and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's in other things. Is your hope and your trust in your own strength and resilience? Is your hope and your trust in a federal political party? Is your hope and your trust in your bank account or your investment portfolio? Or is your hope and your trust in big, a big sense just about how much you can do for yourself, for your family, and for God? Is that your source of strength and hope? Here's how you're going to know. If you have false functional saviors where you've placed your hope and trust, they will create pinch points of pain. You see, pain is God's loudspeaker to his people. So consider your life this morning. Are there areas upon self-examination where you say, well, there are patterns of pain and destruction in this area? Is that perhaps an area that you need to self-examine and reflect on and see that that's actually a place where I'm falsely putting my hope and the pain that I'm experiencing is actually a gift and a mercy from God calling me to pull back from it. If you live in Northeast Burlington, there are three things that typify this kind of sin in our life, right? The one is isolation. If you look at your life and you say, I, I live crowded in by people. Everywhere I go, I see people, but I'm completely alone. Well, that's an area of self examination because the gospel brings you into community. 
If you look at your life and you say, like most people in Northeast Burlington, not only am I isolated, I'm far too busy. And it's causing pain in your life. You're like, man, I just run from one thing to the next, and I'm so thin and I'm so brittle. I feel like if someone dropped my life, it would shatter, not bounce. Too busy. Well, upon self-examination, that's God allowing you to experience the pain of relentless busyness so that you would repent of that and rest in him. So I feel, in the third case, like, not only am I isolated, not only am I too busy, but I feel like my life is meaningless. Well, the existential despair from that is a grace and a mercy from God to press you into the eternal importance found in your life in Christ. You see, this is what self-examination at a deep level looks like. Where are the areas where God in his mercy is allowing me to experience pain so that I can return back to him and reject those other false hopes? Verses 8 to 10. Paul's warning that he's coming back to them a third time. And he's telling the Corinthians that they ought to examine one another and examine themselves before he arrives. In verse 5, he says, test yourselves. Well, the test that was particular to their case was the test of um, have they fallen into the teachings of the super apostles, these false guys that were trying to lead them astray. But friends, the test for us this morning is the same. Have we rejected or co-opted worldly, secular idolatry? Are we all too comfortable with the world around us? Paul says, examine one another and examine yourself. When you examine one another and yourselves, you should find yourself at odds with the world around you. Verse 9, the purpose of this rigorous responsibility for yourself and for others is for restoration. Look at verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Examine yourself. Examine others. That's how Paul finishes this letter to the Corinthians. Verse 11, we'll conclude with this. Finally, rejoice. So imagine hearing this letter read to you in Corinth, right? The entire church gathers together in someone's house. They're so excited because they have this letter from Paul. Um, the person who, one of the only people probably in the church who was literate, stood up in front of the entire gathered church and read this letter. Some of the things very difficult to hear but loving. Some of the things encouraging and strengthening. And now Paul finishes with this. He says, finally, Brothers, rejoice. Don't ever lose sight of this. Christian hope in the gospel brings joy. 
It brings joy to you and to your family and to your church and to your community. It sort of emanates out from the individual who's experienced the joy of having been saved and rescued by God. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Even the weighty, cutting instruction that Paul gives are all towards greater joy. You see, when the gospel comes along and tells you, don't do something, it's not God saying don't, it's God saying don't hurt yourself. It's for your joy. It would be like if a parent had a young child and the child said, you know, I, I really want to express myself by going and playing in the middle of the QEW at rush hour. And the child was like, that would just be my, my greatest joy to go play in the middle of the QEW at 7.30 in the morning. Eastbound. And the parent said, no, you can't. Well, the parent's not being mean to the child. The parent is trying to save and protect that child from things that will certainly not lead to joy. Everything in Paul's letter, everything in God's word is toward our greater joy. Even and especially when it doesn't feel so. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Look, I don't want to move too quickly past this point. We're coming through what has been in our society the most polarizing, dividing time that I've ever seen. And as a church family, hear these words from Scripture. As it relates to other Christians, other people who are here in the body of Christ, aim for restoration. If you've had differences of opinions with other Christians over the last two years, speak truth to one another in love and make restoration your goal. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. See, Paul's telling the Corinthians that there's a fellowship amongst other Christians that's deep and profound because it's a foretaste of the relationships that we get to enjoy for all of eternity. And so Paul's saying to the Christians in Corinth and to us, all of those things that will mark those Christian relationships for all of eternity, restoration, comfort, agreement, peace, love, do them now. Do them now. And he says, and, and when you do, you're going to catch glimpses of God. What a beautiful promise for the church. When you intentionally aim your life in those directions with other Christians, you'll see God. I think that's what Victor Hugo was getting at at the end of his book, Les Miserables, when he says, to love another person is to see the face of God. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Paul is inviting a level of intimacy in Christian fellowship that frankly makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to kiss any of you. 
But I think it's important because what Paul has framed out for us in 2 Corinthians is this truth that a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ will put you at enmity with the world around you. There'll be times when even within your own family, you feel ostracized. Jesus promised that. You're going to feel lonely. Jesus said, I haven't come to bring peace, but to bring war. Families will be divided against one another around gospel truth. That's not RD, that's Jesus. And when your family ostracizes you for the gospel, the promise of scripture is that God in the church has created a better family for you. One that you will live with and enjoy for all of eternity. So greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. If you're like me, you finish this letter and you're curious. What did the Corinthians do in response to Paul's letter? Did they continue on as they were? Did they allow these super apostles to keep their traction and exert influence and lead them away from the gospel? Or did they heed Paul's warning? Well, I think the very fact that this letter was not torn up, but has come down to us throughout the generations, that suggests that the Corinthian church deferred to Paul. Right? They, they heard this hard letter, and they repented and returned to the Lord. They heeded the apostles' teaching. And so as we finish this letter, the question is, what will we do? What happened in Corinth? Paul made it there for this third visit, and he spent three months there. And while he was there in Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Romans. What will be our legacy as people who have received this letter of 2 Corinthians? What will come from our life lived under the apostolic teaching? I pray that generations from now, people say, man, those guys at St. George's, they sure lived under the lordship of Jesus. And they didn't push away their weakness, but they allowed it to display the glorious strength of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these months that we could share together as a church family, sitting under the Apostle Paul and his teaching in 2 Corinthians. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us into truth and doesn't just leave us floundering around to try to figure things out on our own. God, I ask and pray that you would give us the strength, the grace, the love, the confidence to live in authentic community and examine one another and to examine ourselves and to know the joy that comes from being loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.